Thank you, Bob. My name is Paul. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank the Al-Anon who built this podium, which is taller than I am. So I'm Paul, the invisible alcoholic from Los Angeles. You know, and, you know I have this building that's such a huge thing in my mind. I mean, I'm speaking at Hazelden. Hazelden is, you know, uh, Hazelden is like a you know, recovery icon, the epicenter of, of health and sobriety and uh, I mean, I've been hearing Hazelden since, you know, since, certainly since I got sober and began to surround myself with all the little books you can buy that Hazelden, you know, I'm, you know, just, you know, God, uh, Melody Beatty is in the next room signing Codependent No More. And as a songwriter who created some of the real codependent anthems of the 70s, um, it's kind of... <laughs> It's like it's sort of like the Berlin Wall coming down. The two of us, you know, being in the, in the same same building at the same time. You know, um, I should stop by and tell her that I love what she's written and I love the health she gave me because I did when I was sober. You know, when newly sober, I was all of a sudden, you know, trying to deal with life on life's terms, and that meant that the one who was going to make me healthy was I noticed was gone. I noticed a lot of things when I got sober. Things were missing that I was sure were there. Things like the one, my career, uh, my family, my marriage, because I essentially lost it all because, because I would not deal with life on life's terms. I was 49 years old when I got sober 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. And, uh, and I desperately needed spiritual kindergarten. I needed to learn how to deal with other human beings on this planet long enough to find out they were just as scared as me and I needed to find a, a way, you know, I think that newly sober people are like kids on a playground. You ever watch kids in a playground or kids, kids at a birthday party, classic example, four or five-year-old kids at a birthday party. They know something is expected of them, but they don't know what the hell to do, you know, so they'll shove each other, you know, it's like something's expected. I don't know what it is. I have turned to absolute strangers at parties and said, I have no social skills. I have a very busy mind. It is exhausting being me sometimes. See, I was going to speak at Hazelden, so I couldn't sleep last night. I'm in Hazelden. This is going to be recorded. It's going to be out for the world to hear my magnificent story. Now, what could be more important than that? In the meantime, back at my home, they're experiencing a 7.0 earthquake, you know. So uh, it's amazing, a tribute to my own recovery, that when I heard about it, I called my wife immediately and said, are you all right, instead of, do you think I'll be good today, you know. She is fine. I, uh, I have the good fortune to be married to a, a wonderful woman who's been around showbiz all her life, as I spent my life in show business. She is daughter of a great actor named Keenan Wynn. I went out on one blind date with her. I figured if she had dealt with Keenan Wynn, who was one of the great bad boys in Hollywood, she could certainly deal with me. She is sober. She will be sober 10 years, May 31st of next year. I will be sober March 15th of next year. I keep telling her, honey, in 77 days, you'll understand everything. I'm sober because of the grace of God and because of the principles and the steps and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm kind of in a quantum right now. I don't know who's here from the press or if somebody sitting at home listening to this tape right now is in the press or going to go write an article. So there's something I have to say. It has to be a major part of any time I open my mouth to talk about recovery. I cannot speak about recovery without talking about Alcoholics Anonymous because I'd be dead without AA. But we have a, a quandrum here. A, a, a quandrum? Is that the expression? We have a problem. To speak of, of AA on a public level is, is, is verboten. I cannot do that. There is a tradition which, which protects the anonymity of our organization. So I'm going to ask one thing of anybody here that's with the press or anybody listening to this tape. Please, talk as much as you want about my recovery. I'm very open about my recovery. I am a recovering drunk, and I'm proud to be sober today. Do not mention Alcoholics Anonymous. We have an amazing tradition that has worked for, since, the, since 1935, a tradition that states you know, that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our principles, all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities, you know? which when I heard that the first time, I went, that can't be right. <laughs> principles before personality? Wait a minute. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, we get better, you know. So all I ask is if anybody's listening to this tape and you work for a newspaper, please never put the name Paul and Alcoholics Anonymous side by side. There's a real simple reason for it. If I get drunk 
And somebody says, I've seen that there in the paper that there Paul says uh, he's in that Alcoholics Anonymous seminar, you know? It must not work, you know? Because he got drunk. Well, it does work. It works wonderfully, not only to restore, you know, the, to, to, to stop drinking, stop abusing drugs and alcohol, but to restore my life and to teach me how to be a real person, a grown-up person who is capable every now and then of listening and learning from you, you know? You've got to realize that I am a person who was born under this world absolutely terrified of you. So I tried to look like I was really on top of things. I notice when I'm terrified, I get glib, you know. Fear is the great activator of my character defects, it says in one of our books. And it's exactly who I am. When I'm most frightened is when I am the most noisy, the busiest, you know. It's the old behavior. You know, I was raised, to the extent that I was raised, I was raised... Uh, because for the listener who doesn't know, I'm five foot two. And I, you know, I, I was raised in a house where alcohol was a part of the scenario. I mean, my dad was a construction worker. Um, and he drank every night. He always talked about the fact that, that he never missed a day's work because of alcohol, you know. I think what's that line out of Shakespeare? He thinks he doth protest too much. My dad talked about it all the time. But it's interesting. We moved. I went to nine schools by the time I was in the ninth grade. My dad would come home at night. I'd be in a new school, a new environment. My dad would come home at night. My brothers and I would be ushered outside where my, my dad became the primary infant in the house. You know, my mother and he would sit and drink, and she would take care of him. And us kids were kind of left. Nobody ever incidentally said to us, how does it feel to say goodbye to your friends? How does it feel to be the new kid in school? I'm tiny. I mean, tiny. When I was 13 years old, I could run under coffee tables. You know, I, I was... But in, in the world that I was raised in, in the world that I lived in, nobody ever talked about feelings. Nobody ever said, how does it feel to say goodbye? How does it feel to go to a new school? How does it feel to be that scared, you know? Now, the other side of that is my children who have experienced me in recovery. My daughter at age five was saying things like, I think my brother is really getting in touch with his anger. <laughs> my daughter sounded like John Bradshaw at age five, you know? My dad was a really good man. My dad worked really hard, and he drank, and he drank to excess. I cannot tell you he was an alcoholic. It's not one of the things that... The, being an alcoholic and the, the healing of alcoholism, the healing... Uh, there's a healing in the statement. It's a proclamation rather than an accusation for me. I proclaimed myself an alcoholic, and I began to get better. I have a disease. I have learned about my disease, you know. I think my dad had the same disease, but it's not up for me to, to say that. My dad died in an alcohol-related accident, car wreck, when I was 13 years old. And you know, as I, in my years of sobriety, I've thought about the time that I spent with him, and it's really grasping at straws, trying to remember what that was like. What I remember is that every now and then he would get struck with this, this need to be a dad, you know? And I think that, that, you know, it was usually after he'd been drinking and he got sentimental, he'd come in at four in the morning and wake me up, want to hear me sing, you know? There was... There was one very specific story that I always tell from the podium about, about something that happened with my dad. And I was, we were living in this little town called Lucasville, Ohio. It's an awful place. Uh, I've been back there sober. It's still an awful place. I'm sorry, you know. Uh, but it's right where Ohio and Kentucky and West Virginia come together, you know. And uh, one morning, about five in the morning, my dad came and he got me up. And he'd been up drinking all night with a friend whose name I remember but will not mention. And he said, you know what, my son, we're going to... He didn't say we're going to have a bonding moment, but that's what he meant. We're going to have a father and son thing here. We're going to go and see a professional baseball game. We're going to see the Cleveland Indians play baseball. So my dad put me in the car, which was a 50 Merc, like James Dean drove in Rebel Without a Cause. 50 Mercury, and I sat in the back seat, and my dad and this guy, Ike, drove to see the Cleveland Indians play baseball, man, my boy, you know, <laughs> through this incredible rainstorm. I remember feeling like it was my concentration that was keeping the car on the road, because the car was all over the road, you know? And they're passing the bottle back and forth, you know? And I, can, I mean, I can close my eyes and I can see the rain, and I can see the, you know, the windshield wipers, and I can see that bottle going back and forth, and every now and then Dad's turning around to look at me, you know? And I'm, I'm wanting, don't look at me, Dad, look at the road, you know? Gonna have a, gonna see the Cleveland Indians play baseball. My dad drove through that storm to Cincinnati. Thank you. Thank you. Baseball fans every, everywhere. Thank you. You're quick. Usually it takes people a while to get that, you know. 
He drove to he drove to the wrong city. You know, it was a classic alcoholic moment. You know, it was like, you know, it was like a roadmap to the life I was about to live. You know, we got to the got to the ballpark and there were no other cars there. And he said, "Well, we're early. We're going to get great seats." You know, wow. We sat out there and we sat in there for a while and the sun finally broke through and there were no other cars and no other cars and finally he got up and he walked to the window and he looked casual and you know, I could close my eyes, I could see him. Yeah, I could see him with his brown suit pants and he had his sleeveless t-shirt on and, and you know, and he came back and I saw the, his shoulders. I saw, I saw the defeat. I saw that moment of, oh God, I'm done, you know. And he came back and he said something to me that became key to the way I lived my life. He walked back and he said, well kids, there's not going to be a baseball game today, but it's the thought that counts. And I went, click. Okay. I get it. It's the thought. And for 49 years, I was one of the thoughtiest people you ever came across. <laughs> this whole world. I thought about giving money to charities, you know. I thought about being, being a decent friend who would listen and help you move when you need I thought about giving money to, to the kids that needed to be fed. From, I thought about voting. I had opinions about who you voted for, you know. Had, a, had opinions about everything, you know. But I didn't, I didn't do anything about it. I was a thoughty human being. Now, when I got sober, I heard words that changed my life. You taught me, you taught me in recovery that it was my actions that I was responsible for. And the light went on again, you know. It went on a little slower this time. It's a slow process, but the light went on. When my dad was killed, I went off to live with an aunt and uncle in Long Beach, California. They were black belt alcoholics. They were knife fighting. Uh, and you know what? I don't remember feeling anything about it. I don't remember feeling terrified. I don't remember feeling... I don't remember feeling the, what should have been the, uh, the accompanying terror of being the new kid in Long Beach, California, 14 years old. Everybody in Long Beach, California at that time was six feet three, you know? Everybody in California had fantastic tans. What color I have, I got from the light in my refrigerator, you know. <laughs> I was four foot six when I got out of high school, which is eight inches shorter than I am now, so I was probably, at 14, I was probably four foot three, you know. And I had the world's slowest body clock. I'm the only guy I know that talks about pubic hair at the podium. I had a really slow body clock. Everybody hits puberty at nine in California, you know. To go to the showers was terrifying when you look like the Pillsbury Doughboy made out of cantaloupe, you know. <laughs> First thing I ever prayed for, consciously right now remember praying, God, I don't care how big you make me, just cover me with fur, you know. <laughs> Be careful what you pray for. I'll tell you at age 59 I have hair places, I don't need hair, you know. <laughs> don't need hair on the tops of my ears, thank you very much, you know. Now, it's an exciting day. What shall we do? Tweeze or pluck? You know, pluck or scissor. You know? But prayer works sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. You know. So there I was, this little kid. You know, who's uh, all of a sudden in a totally new environment again, surrounded by people that I didn't know, and I wanted desperately. You know what? Alcohol came into my life not because I loved the way it made me feel. It made me feel wonderful to participate in the rites of passage, the ritual of being out with other guys. The first time in my life I was out with other guys, I was doing the same thing as them, and I felt something of sameness. And to feel the same as somebody else is the most wonderful, reassuring feeling. It's why we go to, one of the reasons I think we go to meetings. It's the best I feel in the day is when I go to a meeting. I walk into a meeting and an alcoholic standing at the podium and he says, I'm an alcoholic, are there any others present? We raise our arm. God, it's the best breath I get all day. It's just... It pulls the ribcage away from the lungs, and they fill up, and I go, I'm home. I'm safe. And I was looking for that safety, I think, when I took my first drinks, you know. Wanted to go out and participate in that with these guys. Let's get, let's be close. Let's be buddies. Let's be family. Let's get drunk, throw up, and be somebody, you know. It's interesting. If you, if you get sober and you look back at your life, sometimes you will find what I, I've heard called billboards, you know. Little hints, sometimes very large, of what's to come. The thing with my dad. Um, I remember in, in Long Beach, California, there's a little place called Belmont Shores. It's a, a public beach. And I remember being down at the beach when I was about 15, maybe 16, with a bunch of buddies in the middle of the night. And thinking that across this body of water, there were some beautiful boats, homes and, and, and with boats. And I thought, those people have a lot of money. 
And I said, somebody said, one of us turned, turned to another and said, there's booze on those boats. So my buddies and I climbed, a, you know, jumped in the water. I'm, I don't honestly remember if I was wearing my underwear or trunks. Let's say trunks because it's too ugly to think about me and white legs and little white underwear, you know? <laughs> Tiny little jockeys, you know? <laughs> the boys' department at Sears, where I shop today, you know? We jumped into the water, swam across to these boats, climbed on the boats, and got out, and I found a treasure trove of booze. This is the honest-to-God truth. I, and incidentally, everything out of my mouth up here, and that's different, because when I was still drinking, I was a pilot, I was a heart surgeon, whatever I needed to be at that moment. But since I got sober, I began to share who I really am. So we, we, we got all this booze. I stuffed a couple bottles down my trunks. I put a bottle in each hand, jumped in the water, and tried to swim back. Can't do that like a scene out of Jaws. All of a sudden, I was swimming underwater and the guys were swimming up above me, you know. Uh, I actually poured some booze out of a bottle, put the top back on, thinking it might float a little better, you know. <laughs> Never pretended to be brilliant, you know. Never pretend. But that's how important getting this stuff back to the shore was to me, you know. And think about it. Think about the billboard that I was being given. I was 15 years old and alcohol was drowning me, you know. I wish I could have seen it then. But I couldn't. I had to do what, what I had to do. It takes what it's... And for me, it took a lot. It took a lot. I was terrified of people. I was scared to death. My recovery began from that when I began to share it with somebody else, when I began to tell them that I was scared. Um, if you ran into me in high school and you wanted to talk to Paul Williams, you'd say, hey, Paul, come here. And I would probably tap my watch and wave like I was really busy. I wasn't. I just didn't know how to deal with you. So what does somebody do with their life that doesn't know how to have relationships with people, of course. They go off and, and they become a songwriter, you know? And it's, it, I, I don't know where the connection is, but I think maybe one of my first real addictions was to fantasy. I was writing about the fantasy relationship, and I will tell you that I had great success, you know? Um, and it was success at a, of about a five-degree area right in front of me, you know? About a five-degree area in front of me. That means that there was about 360 degrees around me that was absolute failure, you know. And I was a failure as a father. And I did exactly what my, what my dad did. I drove with my kids in the car. I'll tell you, along the way, I had picked up a variety of drugs. You know, I am a, an alcoholic and an addict, although somebody once told me that's like saying you're from New York, New York. You know? <laughs> I started out, with, I started out with, with a little alcohol, and we added some amphetamines, your basic drive to Phoenix pill. You know, take one of these and let's drop in on Tommy in Albuquerque, you know. But we don't, you know, we don't know Tommy in Albuquerque. Oh, you will by the time we get there, you know. It's like, show up at 3 o'clock in the morning knocking on Tommy's door, who opens the door and goes, oh, God, you know, because you look like he's hallucinating. You know? um, I loved amphetamines. I loved to not sleep. I loved sleep deprivation. I loved to stay up so long that doorknobs would scare me, you know, it's like, oh God, what is that? Um, get it off me, you know. And then I discovered cocaine uh, in my early 30s. I discovered cocaine. And if alcohol made me feel big enough to deal with the rest of the world, cocaine made me feel like I could shoot basketball for money. It was... You know, it was just, uh, it was just all of it. I had found it. I had found it. I was brilliant. I was just brilliant, you know. And, uh, and it became my higher power. And it became, you know, it became, a, it just was a thread that ran through everything that I did. And slowly but surely, I began to turn away from the rest of the world and slowly but surely, cocaine and alcohol, you know. And to hide my drinking, which eventually I did, you know, I became a chronic and habitual liar. Um, I got sober when I was 49 years old, and, and I will tell you that I looked around, and the career that I thought that I had had been gone 10 years. You know, for year, I mean, let me give you, this is me qualifying in a heartbeat. In the 70s, let's talk about just the success I had. In the 70s, I was nominated for six Academy Awards, and I won one. In the 80s, I only wrote the songs for one movie. And that was Ishtar. <laughs> I, 
I'm amazed Nostradamus never mentioned Ishtar, you know, it's that huge a disaster, you know? You know, there was, I think at some level I felt that the drugs and alcohol, you know, there was such grandiosity, there was such grandiosity in who I was and who I am if I allow it to breathe, you know? Uh, and I think that, that what I was dealing with, the reason I was drinking and using as much as I was is because I'm an addict and that's what we do. You know, I'm an alcoholic and that's how we survive. But I think that there was such terror about, you know, when I had a little success, thinking that it was an absolute accident, you know, that it was something I did and now I have to do it again and how am I ever going, how, how am I, emphasize, I ever going to do this again? You see, the great thing about, about sobriety is that we learn that the things that we thought we were doing, the I begins to smaller and smaller. And I find that it's not smaller and smaller in the, in the sense that it diminishes who I am. It increases because the I becomes a God behind me. You know, all I had to do was, was not squeeze the kitty. All I had to do was leave the drugs and alcohol alone and let the spirit of, you know, of this amazing creative spirit that, that, that touches all of us to pass through me. That's all I had to do. All I had to do was open myself up you know, and allow that spirit to pass through me. But I have a massive ego, and so I claimed it as my own, and I tried to recreate it. And what I did was I managed to paint myself. I, uh, I left my wife and my children for a 22-year-old psych major who said I was an alcoholic. And I went, what? She said, you're an alcoholic and an addict, and I can't be with you. No, I'm not. I'm not an addict. Ask any of the people who work for me. Twitch, twitch, you know? And they all lined up and said, no, he's, he's fine. You know? <laughs> twitch, twitch, you know? Because that's what we do. We surround ourselves with people who will co-sign our crap, you know? We, we surround ourselves with people, you know? And when somebody tries to reflect, that's the greatest gift I was ever given. Somebody reflected the truth back to me. You're destroying yourself, you know? And, and you have to see that I will not tolerate that. Praise God for all of you Al-Anons. I welcome you. I give you the Al-Anon salute. You know? I love the, I lo the Al-Anon handshake. But this wonderful girl, this wonderful woman, you know, 22 years old, you know, would try, you know, dared to reflect the truth to me. Dared to do that. Dared to say, this is, a, this is a realistic boundary and you're stepping over it. I will not allow that. You know? And for you and for me, I give you the truth. The truth is that you're destroying yourself and I cannot be around you when you do that. So what do we do when this happens? We go out and we make our first feeble attempts at sobriety. Well, my first. Maybe some of you were like heartbeat, you know, maybe you have linear sobriety. I, had, I sort of came and went, you know. Um, I didn't want to lose this woman. I felt like she was the one that I had been writing about all my life. All those, you know, codependent anthems, you know, were, were probably about her, you know. It, it, I will tell you that in sobriety, you look at some of your titles and you go, wait a minute, I won't last a day without you isn't really a healthy thought, is it, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, hmm. You and me against the world. It could be you and me with the world, maybe, you know. Time, time to rethink this stuff, Paulie, you know. But here she was, and I didn't want to lose her. So I went into treatment. I went into a place that I will not mention because they're great. It, yeah, I will, because I, and I'm sure it works. It's an aversion therapy place called Check. You know, ten days and a couple, you know, follow-ups. And what they do is they give you, they give you injections to make you very ill, and you drink. You know, of course, I never talked to them about my cocaine use. Why muddy the waters with that? You know. But they give you, they give give you stuff to make you sick, make you throw up when you're drinking and have a really bad experience where you're sick, sick, sick. And then every other day they give you sodium pentothal and ask you if you'd want a drink, you know. And if you say yes, then you get sickness again the next day. Well, I would always show up early for the sodium pentothal. This, you know, this should have told them something, you know. I loved it, you know. Let's, you know. Count backwards, 99, 98, three. <laughs> you know, the old classic Art Carney bit, you know. Um, but I came out of Schickshadel, and you know what, in, in fairness to this wonderful hospital, Schickshadel, I will tell you that they probably taught me about the 12 steps. I probably got exactly what I needed there if I was ready, but I wasn't ready. I did try not to drink or use. For seven months, I did not drink. For seven months, I did not use. And I, and I was sailing on pure resolve. Let me talk to you about the power of resolve. 
Paul Williams. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, I am Paul Williams. I can, I can do this. I don't need help. I can not drink. I'm fine. I'm just fine. Just fine here. At seven months, I went to Jamaica on a project. It's going to be a big deal, a great chance to write an amazing musical. So at seven months, I went to Jamaica. It was a fabulous afternoon. I was by the pool with the producer. And a gentleman comes up in a white coat and asked me if I'd like a rum and coke. And I said, rum and coke? I'm Paul Williams. Academy Award winner, got a star on Hollywood Boulevard. I can handle one rum and coke at two o'clock in the afternoon in Jamaica, of course. I had one rum and coke at two o'clock in the afternoon in Jamaica. At 2 a.m., I was at Bob Marley's grave explaining reggae to a bunch of black people. I was so crazy they didn't kill me. It was like, you know, a bunch of... I mean, it was just, you know, God. It's just where I went, you know, expert on everything. A couple of drinks, I got comfortable and the mouth began to move, you know. Uh, so I came back and I was drinking and using again, living with this young lady. And, uh, and I lied about it. I lied. I lied. I lied. And we, you know, God bless you, Al-Anons, I'm sorry. Because in our addiction, we can rise and be powerful and hateful and ugly. And I was all of those things. And she would come to me and say, look, I love you. I'm not going to leave you. Let's just get you some help. Just tell me the truth. You know, I know you're drinking. And I would go, what's wrong with you? You've got a lot of issues with men, don't you? You know? And I would slip into the appropriate psychobabble, and I would begin to, and I would see it in her eyes. I would make her doubt herself. And it's as ugly a thing as I ever did, and I have to live with that today. Yes, I've made my amends, but it's something I think about, that in the defense of my disease, I became the most powerful, ugly. And I would say, what did your father do? Cannot see the truth right before you. And she would go to bed and cry and doubt herself. Nothing wrong with me. Maybe I am broken. Maybe he's not drinking and using. And then as soon as she'd gone to bed, I would sneak out the puppy door. We had a, a really squeaky front door. And I thought if I went out the front door, it's not, I mean, it's a nice house, but it's not that big a house. And the bedroom, and, you know, and the sounds when you're loaded are really exaggerated, you know. So they're like, ah, wake up, Melissa! You know? So rather than have her hear that, I would sneak out the puppy door and score more drugs. A normie would have oiled the front door. You know? Right? Eventually she was gone and uh, I was left to just my drugs and alcohol. Now, you know, talk about somebody who's a high-bottom drunk. Excuse me, I, I hate the expression high-bottom drunk. Just because I didn't wind up broke in the gutter doesn't mean that I am a high-bottom drunk. You take any high-bottom drunk, and as soon as you decide he's a high-bottom drunk, just step one step to the side of him and talk to the people who lived with him, and they'll tell you how high-bottom he was and how they suffered. And I made people around me suffer. My kids suffered, my, my wife, the one, you know. I hurt a young lady really badly in a car wreck, um, hurt myself, and uh, I became a blackout drunk, essentially. I, and you know what? It's there, and uh, that's what God needed for me to be, to get me sober, I think, because in a blackout, I called a psychiatrist and said I wanted to go to treatment. And he, <laughs> he, <laughs> he I swear to God, he called the next morning, he said, well, I found a place for you to go, and uh, I said, what are you talking about? He said, you called yesterday and said you wanted to get into treatment, you know? And I went, somebody's been using my body again, you know? This is, you know? And some sort of a light went on, and I just, it's over, it's time to quit, you know? And I went to a place called New Beginnings in, in uh, Century City, and I was given an amazing gift, I was given a gift. And then, the 12 steps, I was given the fellowship, I was given, first of all, I was given a chance to detox and get the crap out of my system, you know. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the one thing I do now really well as I work. You know, when I was in, in rehab, I, I prayed for the first time about being sober, not before. But I sat down to write a first step, which is basically a drug history, and I said, God, there are things I don't know that I need to know. I don't, know, I don't want to crawl out the puppy door anymore. I don't want to... I don't want to terrify my children in the car. I did the same things my dad did, you know. I would make my kids look away so I could have a drink or a toot. I was clever in the way I did it. I'd go, is that cow on fire? 
I think my daughter's going to wind up in therapy going, I'm dreaming of burning cows. I don't know where it comes from. But I hit my knees and I said, when I, I said I'm going to write this first step and there's something I don't need to know and I need to know it and you have to show me. And I, I reached over and I grabbed what I thought was a blank piece of paper. You know, and I started to write on it. I noticed there was something printed on the other side and I turned it over and for the first time in my life I read the words, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may bear. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do that? That's the third step of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's blessed for me, for all of us, because it's just... You know, when I, when I saw the phrase bondage of self, it's just, uh, on some level, I got it. I got it that I was, that I had been a prisoner, you know. And, I, and, and, you know, I'm not one of those people that writes an amends to himself first, you know. I don't think I need to write an amends to myself. There's plenty of other people. But it allowed me, to, when I saw the phrase bondage of self, when I prayed about this, when I saw it, it allowed me to, to forgive myself on some level and realize I'd been taken prisoner in a heartbeat today and I do not need the drugs or alcohol to use it. All I have to do is start comparing what I have to somebody else. I can sit and you know, look at a young lady crossing the room and let myself, and I can be, I, yeah, this nasty little creature is lurking, you know. I don't know if any of you have in, in sobriety have read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but it's, I, you know, and I always used to say I'd read books that I'd only seen the movie. I actually got this out and read it. I read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde all the way through. And there is a great, there's a scene in that where Dr. Jekyll, who's been experimenting with drugs, turning into this monster, finds that as Dr. Jekyll, he's sitting at a park bench. He's sitting at a park bench, and this young lady walks by, and he starts thinking these controlling, lustful thoughts about her, and all of a sudden he starts turning into the monster. And, he re- and the comment that he makes is he realizes that he's reached a point where he no longer needs the chemicals to turn into a monster. And I went, ah, welcome to recovery. Because <laughs> that's, that's what we get when we get sober. We then, because, then all of a sudden, for me, what we get, story. what I got was, uh, I, I came to the point where I realized that I had to be spiritually known. I mean, to use the old car metaphor, my windshield gets dirty on the inside. My windshield gets dirty inside. And I have to keep it clean. And there are a variety of ways that I do it, you know. Uh, the great blessing is to go to meetings. The great blessings is to work with a sponsor who's 33 years sober. Called me in rehab. He said, how are you treating the world today? I said, ah, momentito, you've had a slip of the tongue. Don't you mean how's the world treating me? And he said, I don't give a rat's ass how the world's treating you. I said, I beg your pardon? He said, no. He said, said, I can't do anything about how the world's treating it. And he said, and you probably can't do anything about it either. But you can do something about the way you treat the world, you know. And it's a great gift. Think about it. How are you treating the world today? It's his program in a nutshell, you know. Um, I went and got my certificate as a drug jewel when I got sober. Uh, Paul, a river to his people, Williams. Um, <laughs> I was going to save the world, you know. And I was pulling people off of bar stools, you know, that, that, that didn't want to be saved, you know. But uh, I wanted to share what I found with everybody. I wanted to share what I found and it. To tell you what I found is that I found that it's okay to be myself. I don't have to reinvent myself moment to moment to moment to please somebody, you know. That if I turn to another human being and express what I'm feeling to them, the chances are they've felt it too. And if I do something that terrifies me, you know, if, I, if something scares me to death and I do it anyway, I'll probably, on some little, little, almost minuscule notch that you can't really see, but I can feel, I when I let go of the secrets that I thought I'd carry to my grave, I get a little more room inside myself to live, you know. For, I get a mid, this whole mid-range of emotions that I never knew existed, and they're finely textured, and they're really beautiful. I mean, it's like a gorgeous cross-hatching pain, and you know, there's so much of life right here. There was a time in my life when I had to be through the ceiling or on the bottom of the floor, you know, that I only knew those two ranges of emotions, but it's in here, and I can experience you, and I can learn from you, you know. I... Uh, I have two ch- amazing children. I have a son who's 18 years old who wants to be an actor and, and a, a beautiful daughter who's 15. We, we were recently at, uh, at a place called the Alisal Guest Ranch in, in Northern California. And I was there with a buddy of mine, a guy named Jeff Berry, who's a, he's 62 years old. He has, he's a great songwriter, wrote Chapel of Love and To Do Run Run, Be My Baby, all these great songs, you know. But he's got 
three-year-old twins. He's 62, and he's got three-year-old twins. This is a man who needs a program, you know? And his, his little, boy, little, his little twins, Clayton and, and Jessica, and Clayton loves to run to his daddy, and he goes, Daddy, Daddy, up, and Jeff picks him up, and Jeff's 6'5", and he, God, Clayton looks around, and he's just amazed at the world. He calls me Other Daddy. That's <laughs> my Other Daddy, because I'm around a lot. So one, we were standing outside looking at the horses and everything, and Clayton looked for his daddy, and he couldn't find him, so he ran to me, and he went, Other Daddy, Other Daddy, Other Daddy, up! And I picked him up, and he looked around, and he went, up. <laughs> and you know, I mean, I, got a, I, I saw something in his eyes that was absolutely the face of my own, my own terror, my own, you know, there, there was, when I was at the peak of my success, when I had everything, something was missing. And what was missing? You. What was missing was a chance to feel like I was a part of a family, that I could go anywhere in the world and turn to somebody that I didn't even know and just tell who I was and what was going on, and somehow, magically, I began to feel part of the world. world. I discovered that with my songwriting, which incidentally is no healthier than it was before, my songwriting returned about three years ago. I started going to Nashville regularly. Nashville's the only city in the world where you can get escargot and gravy. Amazing. (laughs) Went down, to, went, down to, uh, went down to Nashville, and I was terrified. I had never written in the same room with another person while I was sober. I mean, I had written alone, I'd written, but I never sat down and, and dared to show my bad ideas to somebody else and hear theirs until we made a song, you know. So I went out to write my very first day back, and I went to meet up. I'm going to actually say his... I, no, I'm not going to say his whole name. You can look it up on the record if you want to find out, but a wonderful guy from Minnesota named John V., and I walked into this guy's house, and we were going to write a song together, and he said, Writer. And I was scared to death. And I went into the bathroom to pray, because I said, I don't think do this. And when I went into the bathroom to pray, I noticed it makes me cry. <laughs> it just makes me cry still, because I was so scared to try to do it again. And here was this guy. And I came out, and he's really tall, you know, you know typical Minnesotan who doesn't you know, smile. He can be roaring on the inside, and he's got a straight face, you know. You know good German blood, you know. And I said, are you a friend of Bill? And he went, pick me up, Mommy. <laughs> I was like, you know, <laughs> I was just, you know. And we, we started talking about the fact that he wrote, had written a song about an alcoholic. And he and I then, then sat down and we wrote a song that actually was number one last year called You're Gone, that Diamond Rio recorded. And it was my first song back. I wrote it with another alcoholic. It's one of the gifts I've been given along the way. I went to a meeting, I'll leave you with a story I heard in, in, uh, in Nashville. I went to a meeting in Nashville and I heard a guy say, you know, for me being sober, it's like being on a boat in the middle of a lake. I cannot see the shore, but I just keep rowing and I let God. And he said, it's a beautiful day and there's fish in the ocean and it's wonderful. Let God do the steering. I row towards that unseen shore and everything's fine. Now, every now and then, I get in the mood to, to steer. God doesn't have a problem with that. God will get out of the way and lets me take the till. And he said, I look fabulous. I look like a sailor. I got a hat. I got a pipe. You know, I sit there. You could take my picture. He said, hell, it would be easy because the boat's not moving because God don't row, you know. (laughs) So here's my message. God, as long as we keep rowing, you know, as long as I keep rowing, I trust God to steer, and I hope that he keeps sending me back to wonderful, wonderful places, like this blessed event. You know, there is a whole chain of recovery that, go- that goes out from this place that touches the world, and it's really an honor to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. My name is Paul Williams. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank the Al-Anon who built this podium, which is taller than I am. So I'm Paul, the invisible alcoholic from Los Angeles. You know, you know I have this building that's such a huge thing in my mind. I mean, I'm speaking at Hazelden. Hazelden is, you know, uh, Hazelden is like a you know, recovery icon, the epicenter of, of health and sobriety and uh, I mean, I've been hearing Hazelden since, you know, since, certainly since I got sober and began to surround myself with all the little books you can buy that Hazelden, you know, I'm, 
you know, just, you know, God, uh, Melody Beatty is in the next room signing Codependent No More. And as a songwriter who created some of the real codependent anthems of the 70s, um, it's kind of, <laughs> it's, like, it's sort of like the Berlin Wall coming down, the two of us, you know, being, being in, the, in the same, same building at the same time, you know. Um, I should stop by and tell her that I love what she's written and I love the health she gave me because I did when I was sober, you know, when newly sober, I was all of a sudden, you know, trying to deal with life on life's terms and that meant that the one who was going to make me healthy was, was, I noticed, was gone. I noticed a lot of things when I got sober. Things were missing that I was sure were there. Things like the one, my career, uh, my family, my marriage, because I essentially lost it all because because I would not deal with life on life's terms. I was 49 years old when I got sober, 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. And, uh, and I desperately needed spiritual kindergarten. I needed to learn how to deal with other human beings on this planet long enough to find out they were just as scared as me. And I needed to find out what, you know, I think that newly sober people are like kids on a playground. You ever watch kids in a playground or kids Kids at a birthday party, classic example, four or five-year-old kids at a birthday party. They know something is expected of them, but they don't know what the hell to do, you know. So they'll shove each other, you know. It's like, something's expected. I don't know what it is. I have turned to absolute strangers at parties and said, I have no social skills. I have a very busy mind. It is exhausting being me sometimes. See, I was going to speak at Hazelden so I couldn't sleep last night. I'm in Hazelden. This is going to be recorded. It's going to be out for the world to hear my magnificent story. Now, what could be more important than that? In the meantime, back at my home, they're experiencing a 7.0 earthquake, you know. So uh, it's amazing, a tribute to my own recovery, that when I heard about it, I called my wife immediately and said, are you all right, instead of, do you think I'll be good today, you know. She is fine. I uh, have the good fortune to be married to a, a wonderful woman who's been around showbiz all her life as I spent my life in show business. She is daughter of a great actor named Keenan Wynn. I went out on one blind date with her. I figured if she had dealt with Keenan Wynn, who was one of the great bad boys in Hollywood, she could certainly deal with me. She is sober. She will be sober 10 years, May 31st of next year. I will be sober March 15th of next year. I keep telling her, honey, in 77 days, you'll understand everything. I'm sober because of the grace of God and because of the principles and the steps and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm kind of in a quantum right now. I don't know who's here from the press or if somebody sitting at home listening to this tape right now is in the press or going to go write an article. So there's something I have to say. It has to be a major part of any time I open my mouth to talk about recovery. I cannot speak about recovery without talking about Alcoholics Anonymous because I'd be dead without AA. But we have a, a quandrum here. A, a, a quandrum? Is that the expression? We have a problem. To speak of, of AA on a public level is, is, is verboten. I cannot do that. There is a tradition which, which protects the anonymity of our organization. So I'm going to ask one thing of anybody here that's with the press or anybody listening to this tape. Please, talk as much as you want about my recovery. I'm very open about my recovery. I am a recovering drunk, and I'm proud to be sober today. Do not mention Alcoholics Anonymous. We have an amazing tradition that has worked for, since, the, since 1935, a tradition that states you know, that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our principles, all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities, you know? which when I heard that the first time, I went, that can't be right. <laughs> principles before personality? Wait a minute. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, we get better, you know. So all I ask is if anybody's listening to this tape and you work for a newspaper, please never put the name Paul Williams and Alcoholics Anonymous side by side. There's a real simple reason for it. If I get drunk and somebody says, I've seen that there in the paper, that there Paul Williams, is, uh, he's in that Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. It must not work, you know, because he got drunk. Well, it does work. It works wonderfully, not only to restore, you know, the, to... to to stop drinking, stop abusing drugs and alcohol, but to restore my life and to teach me how to be a real person, a grown-up person who is capable of every now and then of listening and learning from you, you know? You've got to realize that I am a person who was born under this world absolutely terrified of you, so I tried to look like I was really on top of things. I notice when I'm terrified, I get glib, you know? 
Fear is the great activator of my character defects, it says in one of our books, and it's exactly who I am. When I'm most frightened is when I am the most noisy, the busiest, you know, it's the old behavior. You know, I was raised, to the extent that I was raised, I was raised, uh, because for the listener who doesn't know, I'm five foot two, and I, you know, uh, I was raised in a house where alcohol was a part of the scenario. I mean, my dad was a construction worker, um, and he drank every night. He always talked about the fact that, that he never missed a day's work because of alcohol, you know? I think what's that line out of Shakespeare, he thinks he doth protest too much. My dad talked about it all the time. But it's interesting, we moved. I went to nine schools by the time I was in the ninth grade. My dad would come home at night, I'd be in a new school, a new environment. My dad would come home at night, my brothers and I would be ushered outside where my, my dad became the primary infant in the house. You know, my mother and he would sit and drink and she would take care of him. And us kids were kind of left. Nobody ever incidentally said to us, how does it feel to say goodbye to your friends? How does it feel to be the new kid in school? I'm tiny. I mean tiny. When I was 13 years old, I could run under coffee tables, you know. I, I was... But in, in the world that I was raised in, in the world that I lived in, nobody ever talked about feelings. Nobody ever said, how does it feel to say goodbye? How does it feel to go to a new school? How does it feel to be that scared, you know? Now, the other side of that is my children who have experienced me in recovery. My daughter at age five was saying things like, I think my brother is really getting in touch with his anger. My daughter sounded like John Bradshaw at age five, you know. My dad was a really good man. My dad worked really hard and he drank and he drank to excess. I cannot tell you he was an alcoholic. It's not one of the things that... The, being an alcoholic and the, the healing of alcoholism, the healing... Uh, there's a healing in the statement. It's a proclamation rather than an accusation for me. I proclaimed myself an alcoholic and I began to get better. I have a disease. I have learned about my disease, you know. I think my dad had the same disease, but it's not up for me to, to say that. My dad died in an alcohol-related accident, car wreck, when I was 13 years old. And you know, as I, in my years of sobriety, I've thought about the time that I spent with him, and it's really grasping at straws, trying to remember what that was like. What I remember is that every now and then he would get struck with this, this need to be a dad, you know? And I think that, that, you know, it was usually after he'd been drinking and he got sentimental, he'd come in at four in the morning and wake me up, want to hear me sing. You know, there was, there was one very specific story that I always tell from the podium about, about something that happened with my dad. And I was, we were living in this little town called Lucasville, Ohio. It's an awful place. Uh, I've been back there sober. It's still an awful place. I'm sorry, you know. Uh, but it's right where Ohio and Kentucky and West Virginia come together, you know. And uh, one morning, about five in the morning, my dad came and he got me up. He'd been up drinking all night with a friend whose name I remember but will not mention. And he said, you know what, my son, we're going to... He didn't say we're going to have a bonding moment, but that's what he meant. We're going to have a father and son thing here. We're going to go and see a professional baseball game. We're going to see the Cleveland Indians play baseball. So my dad put me in the car, which was a 50 Merc, like James Dean drove in Rebel Without a Cause. 50 Mercury, and I sat in the back seat, and my dad and this guy, Ike, drove to see the Cleveland Indians play baseball. Man, my boy. You know, through this incredible rainstorm. And I remember feeling like it was my concentration that was keeping the car on the road, because the car was all over the road, you know? And they're passing the bottle back and forth, you know? And I, can, I mean, I can close my eyes and I can see the rain, and I can see the, you know, the windshield wipers, and I can see that bottle going back and forth, and every now and then Dad's turning around to look at me, you know? And I'm, I'm wanting, don't look at me, Dad. Look at the road, you know? Gonna have a going to see the Cleveland Indians play baseball. My dad drove through that storm to Cincinnati. Thank you. Thank you. Baseball fans every, everywhere. Thank you. You're quick. Usually it takes people a while to get that, you know. He drove to, he drove to the wrong city, you know. It was a classic alcoholic moment, you know. It was like, you know. It was like a roadmap to the life I was about to live, you know. We got to, the, got to the ballpark, and there were no other cars there, and he said, well, we're early. We're going to get great seats, you know? Wow. We sat out there, and we sat there for a while, and the sun finally broke through, and there were no other cars and no other cars, and finally he got up, and he walked to the window, and he looked at the schedule, and, you know, I could close my eyes. I could see him. Yeah, I could see him with his brown suit pants, and he had his sleeveless T-shirt on, and, and 
you know, and he came back and I saw the, his shoulders. I saw, I saw the defeat. I saw that moment of, oh God, I'm done, you know. And he came back and he said something to me that became key to the way I lived my life. He walked back and he said, well, kid, there's not going to be a baseball game today, but it's the thought that counts. And I went, click, okay, I get it, it's the thought. And for 49 years, I was one of the thoughtiest people you ever came across. This whole world. I thought about giving money to charities, you know. I thought about being, being a decent friend who would listen and help you move when you need I thought about giving money to, to the kids that needed to be fed. From, I thought about voting, you know, but I didn't do it. I had opinions about who you voted for, you know. Had, a, had opinions about everything, you know. But I didn't, I didn't do anything about it. I was a thoughty human being. Now, when I got sober, I heard words that changed my life. You taught me, you taught me in recovery that it was my actions that I was responsible for. And the light went on again, you know. It went on a little slower this time. It's a slow process, but the light went on. When my dad was killed, I went off to live with an aunt and uncle in Long Beach, California. They were black belt alcoholics. They were knife fighting. Uh, and you know what? I don't remember feeling anything about it. I don't remember feeling terrified. I don't remember feeling... I don't remember feeling that what should have been the, the accompanying terror of being the new kid in Long Beach, California, 14 years old. Everybody in Long Beach, California at that time was six feet three, you know? Everybody in California had fantastic tans. What color I have, I got from the light in my refrigerator, you know? <laughs> I was four foot six when I got out of high school, which is eight inches shorter than I am now, so I was probably, at 14, I was probably four foot three, you know? And I had the world's slowest body clock. I'm the only guy I know that talks about pubic hair at the podium. I had a really slow body clock. Everybody hits puberty at nine in California, you know? To go to the showers was terrifying when you look like the Pillsbury Doughboy made out of cantaloupe, you know. <laughs> First thing I ever prayed for, consciously right now remember praying, God, I don't care how big you make me, just cover me with fur, you know. <laughs> Be careful what you pray for. I'll tell you at age 59 I have hair places, I don't need hair, you know. <laughs> don't need hair on the tops of my ears, thank you very much, you know. Uh, it's an exciting day, what shall we do? Tweeze or pluck, you know? Pluck or scissor. You know? But prayer works, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, you know? So there I was, this little kid, you know, who's uh, all of a sudden in a totally new environment, again, surrounded by people that I didn't know, and I wanted desperately... You know what? Alcohol came into my life not because I loved the way it made me feel. It made me feel wonderful to participate in the rites of passage, the ritual of being out with other guys, for the first time in my life, I was out with other guys, I was doing the same thing as them, and I felt something of sameness. And to feel the same as somebody else is the most wonderful, reassuring feeling. It's why we go to, one of the reasons I think we go to meetings. It's the best I feel in the days when I go to a meeting. I walk into a meeting and an alcoholic's standing at the podium and he says, I'm an alcoholic, are there any others present? We raise our arm. God, it's the best breath I get all day. It's just, it pulls the ribcage away from the lungs and they fill up and I go, I'm home, I'm safe. And I was looking for that safety, I think, when I took my first drinks, you know. Wanted to go out and participate in that with these guys. Let's get, let's be close, let's be buddies, let's be family. Let's get drunk, throw up and be somebody, you know. It's interesting, if you, if you get sober and you look back at your life, sometimes you will find what I, I've heard called billboards, you know, little hints sometimes very large, of what's to come. The thing with my dad. Yeah. Um, I remember in, in Long Beach, California, there's a little place called Belmont Shores. It's a, a public beach. And I remember being down at the beach when I was about 15, maybe 16, with a bunch of buddies in the middle of the night. And thinking that across this body of water, there were some beautiful boats, homes and, and, and with boats. And I thought, those people have a lot of money. And I said, somebody said to one of us, turned, turned to another and said, there's booze on those boats. So my buddies and I climbed, a, you know, jumped in the water. I'm, I don't honestly remember if I was wearing my underwear or trunks. Let's say trunks because it's too ugly to think about me and white legs and little white underwear, you know. <laughs> Tiny little jockeys, you know. <laughs> the boys' department at Sears where I shop today, you know. But we jumped into the water, swam across to these boats, climbed on the boats, and, got, and I found a treasure trove of booze. 
This is the honest to God truth. I, and incidentally, everything out of my mouth up here, and that's different because when I was still drinking, I was a pilot, I was a heart surgeon, whatever I needed to be at that moment. But since I got sober, I began to share who I really am. So we, we, we got all this booze. I stuffed a couple bottles down my trunks. I put a bottle in each hand, jumped in the water, and tried to swim back. Can't do that. It's like a scene out of Jaws. All of a sudden, I was swimming underwater, and the guys were swimming up above me, you know? Uh, I actually poured some booze out of a bottle, put the top back on, thinking it might float a little better, you know? <laughs> Never pretended to be brilliant, you know? Never pretend... But that's how important getting this stuff back to the shore was to me, you know? And think about it. Think about the billboard that I was being given. I was 15 years old, and alcohol was drowning me, you know? I wish I could have seen it then, but I couldn't. I had to do what, what I had to do. It takes what it's... And for me, it took a lot. It took a lot. I was terrified of people. I was scared to death. My recovery began from that when I began to share, when I began to tell them that I was scared. Um, if you ran into me in high school and you wanted to talk to Paul Williams, you'd say, hey, Paul, come here. And I would probably tap my watch and wave like I was really busy. I wasn't. I just didn't know how to deal with you. So what does somebody do with their life that doesn't know how to have relationships with people? Of course, they go off and, and they become a songwriter, you know, and it's... It, I, I don't know where the connection is, but I think maybe one of my first real addictions was to fantasy. I was writing about the fantasy relationship, and I will tell you that I had great success, you know. Um, and it was success at a, of about a five-degree area right in front of me, you know. About a five-degree area in front of me. That means that there was about 360 degrees around me that was absolute failure, you know. And I was a failure as a father, and I did exactly what my what my dad did. I drove with my kids in the car. I'll tell you, along the way, I had picked up a variety of drugs. You know, I am a, an alcoholic and an addict, although somebody once told me that's like saying you're from New York, New York. You know? <laughs> I started out, with, I started out with, with a little alcohol, and we added some amphetamines, your basic drive to Phoenix pill. You know, take one of these, and let's drop in on Tommy in Albuquerque, you know? But we don't... You know, we don't know Tommy in Albuquerque. Oh, you will by the time we get there, you know. It's like, show up at 3 o'clock in the morning knocking on Tommy's door, who opens the door and goes, oh, God, you know, because you look like he's hallucinating. You know? um, I loved amphetamines. I loved to not sleep. I loved sleep deprivation. I loved to stay up so long that doorknobs would scare me. You know, it's like, oh, God, what is that? Um... Get it off me, you know. And then I discovered cocaine. Uh, in my early 30s, I discovered cocaine. And if alcohol made me feel big enough to deal with the rest of the world, cocaine made me feel like I could shoot basketball for money. It was... <laughs> you know, it was just... Uh, it was just all of it. I had found it. I had found it. I was brilliant. I was just brilliant, you know. And, uh, and it became my higher power. And it became, you know, it became, a, it just was a thread that ran through everything that I did. And slowly but surely, I began to turn away from the rest of the world, and slowly but surely, I became an alcohol, you know. And to hide my drinking, which eventually I did, you know, I became a chronic and habitual liar. Um, I got sober when I was 49 years old, and, and I will tell you that I looked around and the career that I thought that I had had been gone 10 years, you know, for years. I mean, let me give you, this is me qualifying in a heartbeat. In the 70s, let's talk about just the success I had. In the 70s, I was nominated for six Academy Awards, and I won one. In the 80s, I only wrote the songs for one movie, and that was Ishtar. I'm amazed Nostradamus never mentioned Ishtar, you know, it's that huge a disaster, you know? You know, there was, I think at some level I felt that the drugs and alcohol, you know, there was such grandiosity, there was such grandiosity in who I was and who I am if I allow it to breathe, you know? Um, and I think that, that what I was dealing with, the reason I was drinking and using as much as I was is because I'm an addict and that's what we do. You know, I'm an alcoholic, and that's how we survive. But I think that there was such terror about, you know, when I had a little success, thinking that it was an absolute accident, you know, that 
It was something I did, and now I have to do it again. And how am I ever going to, how, how am I, emphasize, I ever going to do this again? You see, the great thing about, about sobriety is that we learn that the things that we thought we were doing, the I begins to smaller and smaller. And I find that it's not smaller and smaller in the, in the sense that it diminishes who I am. It increases because the I becomes a God behind me. You know, all I had to do was, was not squeeze the kitty. All I had to do was leave the drugs and alcohol alone and let the spirit of, you know, of this amazing creative spirit that, that, that touches all of us to pass through me. That's all I had to do. All I had to do was open myself up you know, and allow that spirit to pass through me. But I have a massive ego, and so I claimed it as my own, and I tried to recreate it. And what I did was I managed to paint myself. I, uh, I left my wife and my children for a 22-year-old psych major who said I was an alcoholic. And I went, what? She said, you're an alcoholic and an addict, and I can't be with you. No, I'm not. I'm not an addict. Ask any of the people who work for me. Twitch, twitch. You know? And they all lined up and said, no, he's, he's fine. You know? <laughs> twitch, twitch. You know? Because that's what we do. We surround ourselves with people who will co-sign our crap, you know? We, we surround ourselves with people, you know, and when somebody tries to reflect, that's the greatest gift I was ever given. Somebody reflected the truth back to me. You're destroying yourself, you know, and, and you have to see that I will not tolerate that. Praise God for all of you al -Anons. I welcome you. I give you the al salute, you know. <laughs> I love the, I lo the al handshake. <laughs> <laughs> But this wonderful girl, this wonderful woman, you know, 22 years old, you know, would try, you know, dared to reflect the truth to me, dared to do that, dared to say, this is a, this is a realistic boundary and you're stepping over it. I will not allow that, you know, and for you and for me, I give you the truth. The truth is that you're destroying yourself and I cannot be around you when you do that. So what do we do when this happens? We go out and we make our first feeble attempts at sobriety. Well, my first, maybe some of you were like heartbeat, you know, Maybe you have linear sobriety. I, had, I sort of came and went, you know. Um, I didn't want to lose this woman. I felt like she was the one that I had been writing about all my life. All those, you know, codependent anthems, you know, were, were probably about her, you know. It, I will tell you that in sobriety, you look at some of your titles and you go, wait a minute, I won't last a day without you isn't really a healthy thought, is it, you know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, hmm. You and me against the world. It could be you and me with the world, maybe, you know. Time, time to rethink this stuff, Paulie, you know. But here she was, and I didn't want to lose her. So I went into treatment. I went into a place that I will not mention because they're great. It, yeah, I will, because I, and I'm sure it works. It's an aversion therapy place called Check. you know. Ten days and a couple, you know, follow-ups. And what they do is they give you... They give you injections to make you very ill, and you drink, you know. Of course, I never talked to them about my cocaine use. Why muddy the waters with that, you know? But they give you they give give you stuff to make you sick, make you throw up when you're drinking, and have a really bad experience where you're sick, sick, sick. And then every other day they give you sodium pentothal and ask you if you want a drink, you know. And if you say yes, then you get sickness again the next day. Well, I would always show up early for the sodium pentothal. This, you know, this should have told them something, you know. I loved it, you know. That's, you know, count backwards: ninety-nine, ninety-eight. Three, <laughs> you know, the old classic Art Carney bit, you know. Um, but I came out of Shadle, and you know what? In in fairness to this wonderful hospital, Shadle, I will tell you that they probably taught me about the twelve steps. I probably got exactly what I needed there if I was ready, but I wasn't ready. I did try not to drink or use for seven months. I did not drink for seven months. I did not use, and I and I was sailing on pure resolve. Let me talk to you about. The power of resolve. Paul Williams, I mean, for God's sakes, you know, I am Paul Williams. I can, I can do this. I don't need help. I can not drink. I'm fine. I'm just fine. Just fine here. At seven months, I went to Jamaica on a project. It's going to be a big deal, a great chance to write an amazing musical. So at seven months, I went to Jamaica. It was a fabulous afternoon. I was by the pool with the producer. And a gentleman comes up in a white coat and asks me if I'd like a rum and coke. And I said, rum and coke? I'm Paul Williams. 
Academy Award winner, got a star on Hollywood Boulevard. I can handle one rum and coke at two o'clock in the afternoon in Jamaica, of course. I had one rum and coke at two o'clock in the afternoon in Jamaica. At 2 a.m., I was at Bob Marley's grave explaining reggae to a bunch of black people. I was so crazy they didn't kill me. It was like, you know, a bunch of... I mean, it was just, you know, God. It's just where I went, you know, expert on everything. A couple drinks, I got comfortable and the mouth began to move, you know. Uh, so I came back and I was drinking and using again, living with this young lady, and, uh, and I lied about it. I lied, I lied, I lied. And we, you know, God bless you, Alan Ons, I'm sorry, because in our addiction, we can rise and be powerful and hateful and ugly, and I was all of those things. And she would come to me and say, look, I love you, I'm not gonna leave you. Let's just get you some help. Just tell me the truth, you know, I know you're drinking. And I would go, what's wrong with you? You've got a lot of issues with men, don't you? you know? And I would slip into the appropriate psychobabble and I would begin to, and I would see it in her eyes. I would make her doubt herself. And it's as ugly a thing as I ever did. And I have to live with that today. Yes, I've made my amends, but it's something I think about that in the defense of my disease, I became the most powerful, ugly. And I would say, what did your father do to you? Cannot see the truth right before you. And she would go to bed and cry and doubt herself. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I am broken. Maybe he's not drinking and using. And then as soon as she'd gone to bed, I would sneak out the puppy door. We had a, a really squeaky front door. And I thought if I went out the front door, it's not, I mean, it's a nice house, but it's not that big a house. And the bedroom, and, you know, and the sounds when you're loaded are really exaggerated, you know. So they like, ah, wake up, Melissa! You know? So rather than have her hear that, I would sneak out the puppy door and score more drugs. A normie would have oiled the front door. You know? Right? Eventually she was gone, and uh, I was left with just my drugs and alcohol.